This podcast contains discussion about adult topics. Use your judgment if there are little ears around. Hello and welcome to Doing It. This is a podcast made by the Family Planning Victoria Schools and Community Team. My name is Anne. I'm part of the team which go to schools and run classes for all year levels on bodies, growing up, puberty, sex, reproduction and relationships. This podcast is for parents and carers of school-aged children so that we can share what goes on in a relationships and sexuality education class and help support these sorts of conversations at home. Today I'm going to be speaking with Kate Bourne from the Victorian Assisted Reproduction Treatment Authority. The acronym is VARTA. VARTA is in the business of reproductive technology. They do registration of reproductive clinics, public education, manage donor conception registers and links people with their donor. Lots of children are conceived using some form of assisted reproduction. When Family Planning Victoria run classes in primary school about making babies, it's really important that all types of family are included. So we talk about IVF and other sorts of assisted reproductive technology too. I've had parents tell me that they're not sure when to explain to their children that a doctor helped make them. I've also had many children that know lots about the IVF process and are very proud of their story in class. FPV has a long history of collaborating with VARTA to provide educational resources. I'm going to ask Kate about what sort of advice VARTA has for talking to children about assisted reproduction. So I'm talking with Kate Bourne from VARTA today. Kate, could you explain a little bit about what VARTA is and what it does? So VARTA is a statutory authority funded by the government, the Victorian government, and works in three main areas. So regulation, public education, so we have a, a really good website with information about fertility and infertility. Uh, we run an annual Time to Tell seminar. Uh, we have brochures and uh, we're part of the Coalition for the Your Fertility and we also manage the donor registers. What misconceptions about fertility do you think people generally have? So I think because the focus is often for young people not getting pregnant rather than you know, one day they might want to get pregnant, often there is that misconception that um, they're going to get pregnant the very first month they try, whereas uh, actually we're the least fertile um, species on the planet. Oh, and that's, that's that, sad. <laughs> um, and uh, that, that's for a reason because our babies are very dependent on us for a very long time and so we have evolved to be far less uh, fertile than other species who every single time they mate they have Mm. offspring so it can take it's quite common to take up to a year to get pregnant Uh, but if it's taking longer than a year then that's not usual and so people would be considered infertile and certainly if people are older uh, they should uh, certainly seek out help if it's even six months and they haven't Mm. conceived and the other thing that people aren't aware of is that as we get older we become less fertile So often people are quite unrealistic about how long they will be fertile for and they might see um, magazines or things online about older actresses having Mm. um, 
babies when they're in late 40s or early 50s were in fact that doesn't usually happen without assistance from mm. a donor egg. And perhaps women are aware of menopause and even younger girls in class will know the word menopause and kind of understand that fertility stops, yeah. but men don't. That's right. So this is a conversation for boys and girls, yeah. very much so. And people aren't aware too that for the 10 years before menopause starts uh, that they're often well, they're perimenopausal and subfertile, and also their risk of oh, miscarriages. Uh, so their their risk of miscarriage is much higher, and also they're much less likely to to become pregnant. But you know, people might be having um, you know regular periods, and so for many women, that's their sign that they're fertile, mm. when in fact they're not. Yeah, and for men too, um, their fertility declines with age. So, and all of these things are impacted by smoking, alcohol, diet, and often people don't know when to have intercourse mm. to make a baby mm. um, so they're not really aware of their fertile window. Um, that can be a problem when young people in particular are using apps to show cycles and uh, that show often shows a f- fertile window uh, which might not be particularly accurate for each person. Absolutely and there was a presentation at the last Fertility Society of Australia conference which showed a large proportion of apps were in fact inaccurate Mm. and so it would be foolhardy to rely on those for Mm. contraception purposes. How many people are conceived with the help of some sort of assisted reproductive technology and do those people in your experience always know about their conception story? So roughly uh, 4% of all babies born in Australia every year are conceived with the help of assisted reproductive technology. So that can range from standard IVF to needing a sperm donor or an egg donor or both or an embryo donor or a surrogate. So that translates roughly if you visualise it to one person in every classroom. But of course you might have you know, more children in one classroom and less in another. Uh, In terms of whether they know or not, there's been a a major shift. So if you talk to people who were conceived uh, with help a generation ago, many of them were not told because there was a lot of stigma about IVF and in particular uh, donor treatment. Mm. Whereas these days, a lot more people are told, but certainly not all. And what was the stigma? The stigma was uh, that firstly there was some legal issues because there was concern that the donor might have legal responsibilities and the other stigma was that men who were infertile often felt quite emasculated. They felt very embarrassed, ashamed, felt they were letting their wife down and it was always a wife it was Mm -hmm. only heterosexual couples who were treated and so there was a lot of protection of of that man and I think there was a thought uh, from the medical profession that no one needed to know Mm. and that they would I guess treat the infertility with the missing ingredient without really thinking about the person who's created from that and we do know now that that person is often very curious to know where they came from and it's actually impossible to keep a secret these days with direct-to-consumer DNA testing. So the genie's out of the bottle, really. 
Because of all those ancestry That's right. gene testing. So people are finding unexpected surprises right. when they're sort of, I guess, innocently testing, thinking it'll be a bit of fun or they're curious and they may get results back that are entirely unexpected. So this could be, yeah, so we are finding that people are discovering their donors conceive, they're discovering who their donor is, they're discovering um, people created from the same donor as well. So wow. it's just changed everything. Uh, as well as DNA discovery, of course, often parents told other people and so that other person could also inform or assume that the person knows. Mm. Uh, people can blurt it out in anger. There are all sorts of different ways of finding out. People with dementia can blurt it out. Yeah, all because of that secrecy and the shame. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So these days we encourage people to actually be very proud of their story because we know their children were um, very much wanted, mm. uh, worked for very, you know, took a lot of effort and courage mm. and uh, and so that the message has also changed. So rather than being a dirty little secret, it should now be a proud family story. Mm. And that's often what I see in class, that children that know that story about themselves are really proud and it's really interesting and exciting about themselves. Mm. Mm. So even really young children can tell you about it and explain it really beautifully. Yeah, possibly more so than uh, traditional conception. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, a lot of donor-conceived people that I've spoken to are adults say they don't have to think about that vision of their parents doing that to help them. So. Uh, young people are also very relieved that there's another way apart from sex to make a baby because they never want to have sex in their life. I remember that (laughs) feeling. (laughs) Can you tell me a bit about donor eggs and donor sperm and how people access that? And young people often know about the idea of a sperm bank um, and how does that work and is there an egg bank and what are the rules about donating sperm? That's a big, big that's yes. Ten questions. Yeah, ten questions all at once. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe I'll start with donor sperm first. So the reasons people might need donor sperm is because the male partner's um, seriously infertile. If there's only a minor issue, then normally IVF with microinjection can help them have a baby and they don't need donor sperm. But if uh, the male partner has no sperm, then this can be an option for them. Or of course, for uh, single women and for lesbian couples. And so single women and lesbian couples are the greatest uh, users of donor treatment. Now, they uh, everyone has different options. So if they want to go to a clinic, then the options are that there are sperm banks and clinics uh, recruit their own donors and they store the samples and freeze them. So they store them on site? Often, yes, yep. yes. Uh, so usually it's done here. Uh, but they're also, they are stored in liquid nitrogen. So it is um, possible to import interstate or overseas. And so the donors in Australia need to be altruistic only, so they can't be paid other than reasonable expenses. They need to be identity release donors. So there's no such thing as being able to access an anonymous donor at a clinic within Australia throughout. And why would someone import 
sperm from overseas or so some of the clinics are finding it difficult to keep up with demand right. because there has been a big increase in demand since um, many single women and lesbian couples are wanting to have families so some um, do import sperm into Australia but it does need to meet the criterion so it does mm-hmm. they, they do need to be identity release donors and they do need to be altruistic in what way do they release their identity so uh, once a person is 18 uh, they have the right to know who right. the donor is okay. yeah now that varies from state to state and here in Victoria we have the most progressive legislation and we also have VARTA um, and our role is to support donor conceived people find out more if they're interested and also to support the donor. And there's a limit to how many babies can be made from one person's sperm, is that right? Yes, so under the legislation uh, the donation can only be used for 10 women so it doesn't limit the number of children, it limits the number of recipients or people who use them and that includes the donor's own family. So if he's had children with one woman then right. it would go to nine women. And that includes even women um, who are together and one woman creates a pregnancy right. and another woman creates the next That's one. That's right. So it is, two. they would currently be considered two women. There may well be changes to the legislation so they are considered one family. Mm. Yeah. And what are the difficulties with creating an egg bank? Yeah. Oh, the other reason I probably should go into is that some people use a, a friend or a family member right. and they can either bring that friend or family member to a clinic and the clinic can do all the screening tests um, because the, the clinic need to uh, screen them for health issues. They usually do some blood tests and they normally quarantine the sperm for a period of time and then recheck the donor and then release it. So there are all those health checks mm. and they also look at the donor's genetic health history. So it's quite a thorough process and the donor has counselling as well and his partner. So if someone prefers to use someone they know rather than a clinic donor, uh, then they might bring their donor to the clinic. The other thing to be aware of is that parents who have a child through a clinic donor can apply for information about the donor while the children are young mm-hmm. and it's up to the donor if he gives consent or not. And yeah. they might do that for health reasons? Why would they? Oh, all well, sorts of reasons. They might want to know the donor's first name because they instead of just calling your donor, they want to call him his name. They might want to know what he looks like, so they might be interested in, in a photograph. They might like to meet him. They might like to correspond with him. They might want to thank him. So mm. for all those reasons, mm. so we are seeing particularly single mothers and lesbian mums are starting to make those applications while their children are quite young. Wow. And mm. the donors are often saying yes. But the donors need to think carefully because if their donation has been used for a number of families, they need to think about Be how they would <laughs> manage all that contact. Yeah, wow. So, yeah. The other th- Thing that people can do of course is home insemination so they might have a friend or family member or might recruit someone on the internet and inseminate at home and so that doesn't need to go through the screening 
No, but yeah. they need to, they should probably think about that very carefully because if all that screening and and also they need to really think carefully, well, how is this arrangement going to work? Mm. Um, because both the donors and the recipients have counselling and make sure they're on the same page. Whereas if you do it yourself, you might think you're on the same page, but things can, you know, just like with all families, mm. sometimes things can, can be complicated. Uh, you can think you, you understand each other and, and you don't. In terms of egg donation, there aren't egg banks. Some clinics can recruit egg donors, but there, it, there aren't commonly egg banks. They tend to be overseas. The eggs can be imported, but only, again, if they uh, comply with the legislation in that state. Right. And so they would also need to be altruistic and... And identity released. And identity yeah, released, well. right. yeah. So often um, it's actually people that... Egg donors are people that they might know. Yes. So they might be sisters, cousins, friends, hairdressers, and they might find them online. And so, mm. so often there is an ongoing level of contact with a family and their egg donor. When I explain this to young people, the idea of egg donation, and they often know about sperm banks and donated eggs or sperm, but they think that the donor would then be the parent. So how might you explain to a young person what the difference between donating genetic information and being a parent is? Yeah. So I guess they have contributed the genetic and biological material so I guess they are the genetic parent but they're not doing any parenting so they are not the legal parent and they're certainly not doing the mumming or the dadding so their role is very very different so some people think of them as the real parent Mm. I disagree with that I mean I think they are the real biological parent the real parent is you know, often in someone's mind is is the person who raises the child and is actively engaged with the child. But there is room for everyone too. So it's very natural for donor conceived people to want to know where they've come from mm. and to connect with their donor. How common is surrogacy in Australia and what do young people need to know about surrogacy? So surrogacy in Australia is uh, still fairly rare because you can imagine it's quite a big deal to carry a baby for somebody else. And so there are far more people wanting to find a surrogate than there are people who are prepared. But I think that culture might change the more that we see it happening and we the more we see it working. But naturally it is a very big deal for someone to mm. do that for somebody else. It, it certainly so. seems beyond the generosity of most of the young people that I talk yeah. to. Who would do that? When, yeah. But no. there are women who are they're very willing to do that, even for strangers mm. or for people that they get to know. Uh, they wouldn't be complete strangers, of course, but they didn't initially know them apart from potentially exploring this. Mm. So, And the culture around surrogacy is very different in different countries. Yeah, so some people do travel overseas for surrogacy and that sort of can vary very much on the country. So some countries do it very well and there's a very strong relationship between the uh, intended parents and the surrogate and they form a lasting friendship 
and the child knows the surrogate and and you know it's it's a, a really beautiful outcome for mm. the person born unfortunately some people go places where and they go for also for sperm donation egg donation and surrogacy because they don't want their child to know who the surrogate is or because they don't feel they'll find a donor mm. and then that can mean the child might have a lot more difficulty connecting having, in the future yeah any contact Mm. And in some third world uh, countries, there is real concern about whether the surrogate's really well informed mm. and um, is this the, the primary motivation? Is it purely financial? And mm. uh, she might speak a different language, so that's going to make it difficult to connect. Mm. So, yeah, so it does vary. Family Planning Victoria has collaborated with VARTA to provide classroom teaching resources from students from grades 3 to 10 to help discuss assisted reproductive technology and we would be using discussion around that around any conversation about babies and how they start so from grade three up what sort of things would you advise parents and carers to say to their children and at what age so um, I guess it depends whether they've their, their own children are conceived from um, a donor or gestated by a surrogate. Uh, certainly the advice all around the world now is totally different. It is actually to talk to their child about how they came to be and to do this the earlier the better. It's certainly uh, the easier as well and we certainly know from research and also I've worked with many many hundreds of donor conceived people and the people that can never remember a time where they didn't know are the most comfortable in their own mm. skin about their family story so for them it's just completely normal and so we do suggest parents start practicing while their child's a baby, even though the baby isn't going to take much in. Mm. Um, but then it gets the parents more relaxed and comfortable about what language they're going to use. And then really from as young as two and three, children start to really understand the concept of that their family needed help to make them and that there was a person called a donor and a donor is someone that gives something to someone else because they need it because the donor's given them something and in the early stages parents might feel more comfortable saying the the male part or the female part or the boy bit or the girl bit mm. uh, later on they might talk about eggs and sperm we usually suggest you know don't be shy use the real words but uh, some people are not comfortable, so they use baby magic or mm. other terms. But then as as the child gets older, then they tell them more and more. Yes, and as I said, a lot of, a lot of young people know a lot about their IVF story or their assisted reproductive story. Uh, and it's the ones that have been conceived by their parents having sex that don't know much at all. <laughs> so what would be your takeaway for parents and carers when talking about assisted reproductive technology, what's the one thing you would want them to do or to know about that? Uh, so um, the main thing is to be proud of their story. A lot of parents from years ago, they weren't proud. Mm. And it was a dirty little secret and they felt very uncomfortable. And look, I do understand talking about sex and reproduction for any parent can be an awkward conversation. 
so it's important to get yourself right because if you tell in a way that the kids understand that you are very uncomfortable, they're not going to be able to continue the conversation um, with you. So it's important to be proud. If you're finding it difficult to talk about, uh, I would suggest that you seek some help with that. Um, we've got lots of uh, resources on the VARTA website. Mm, so, including um, support networks. Absolutely, and, yep. absolutely. So it's actually quite a simple story to tell. The other thing I'd really recommend families do is to invest in some really good children's storybooks. There are a lot available and they can make life a lot easier because, um, and also it normalises things because it's so common that there are children's books. Mm. And so that's a really good message for the child. Uh, the other thing to think about doing is actually making a family storybook about their own family journey to have their children. And kids absolutely love this. Mm. And it can be just a really, you can steal all the words from the other children's books uh, and then just put your own photos in there and change the mm. language to what you feel comfortable Hmm. And I would add to that, it's not just the people who are conceived this way, but it's every child in a class. It's a really great thing for them to know about yeah. because there will be someone in their class that's yes. made this way. It's really important for parents who haven't used donors and surrogates to educate their kids because uh, some we get a lot of stories where um, children say to their classmates, but you must have a dad. Mm. Um, you can't not have a dad. And what they're really saying is that there had to be a boy bit from somewhere. Yep. And so it means that the donor-conceived child who, say, conceived in a single-parent family or lesbian-parent family has to go through and explain it all. Mm. And they get really tired of doing this and... It would be really good if parents could tell them that they're all different sorts of families. There are one-parent families, there are two-parent families and mm. some, you know, women use a sperm donor, some gay dads use an egg donor and a mm. surrogate. So it makes their lives much, much easier. Yep. And that love makes a family. That's a lovely note to end on. Thank you so much for talking to me, Kate. And Pleasure. Uh, I'll link to all those resources and to your website in the, the notes for this episode. Thank Fantastic. you so much. Thank you, Anne. So thanks to Kate for talking to me. I'm just going to pull out some key things which stood out for me in this discussion. There's probably at least one person in every Australian classroom that was conceived through some type of assisted reproductive technology. Young people are given some information at school about contraception, particularly in high school, but it is unlikely that they will be having classes about fertility. This might be something that parents and carers can talk about at home. It's great to be really proud of a conception story, whatever that story is. Young people find it really amazing and special. Some resources which I will link in the episode notes for the show. The VARTA website has lots of news about fertility, including links to support groups. There's also a page titled When to Tell, Ages and Stages, giving really detailed advice for parents and carers about how to tell their children about IVF or ART at different ages. The Donor Conception Network has lots of books available to help explain different types of conception. Corey Silverberg's book, What Makes a Baby, is also a great book to start a conversation about babies no matter how they were conceived. VITA and FPV have partnered to produce a teaching module. This is available on our website. It's a classroom resource for teachers to use with students uh, between grades 3 and 10 when talking about assisted reproduction. 
Thanks for listening. For more information about Family Planning Victoria, you can go to fpv.org.au. Contact us directly at doingit at fpv.org.au or you can follow FPV on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. Subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out. Rate, review if you like it. Thanks very much for listening. Bye.